continue then this morning through our journey of the Bible, reaching uh, the man, the king, Solomon, David's son, succeeder to the throne of David. Next week, uh, we'll look at Ecclesiastes, and then we'll take a break to think about the cross and the resurrection before journeying on towards some more troubled times for God's uh, people. So I think you need your Bibles in one hand at least uh, this morning, uh, open somewhere around where Chris was reading from, because the whole life of Solomon is uh, there for us in the first 11 chapters of the book of 1 Kings, and it's also recorded in different ways through the first nine chapters of the second book of Chronicles. Chronicles, you'll remember, is is an additional commentary, uh, not so much concentrating on the history of the people, but more on the history of the temple and the priesthood. And so it picks up the same events, but often from a slightly different point of view. Although it's fair to say that for the life of Solomon, most of the chapters have an awful lot in common. So we'll spend most of our time in 1 Kings and uh, dip into 2 Chronicles maybe once or twice when it gets really exciting. Okay? Uh, you're laughing nervously because you can't imagine it ever getting really exciting, I know. Uh, humor me, and uh, well, here we go. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 46, just at the uh, very end of chapter 2, the final verse, after lots of faffing about and argy-bargy like there is with these things, we read that the kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hands. And so we pick up the story uh, at chapter 3 and verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon, verse 5 of chapter 3, during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. What a question. What would you have answered to that question? Ask whatever you want me to give you. We're not going to Uh, dwell on this, but just as an aside, if you ever have an hour or so to spare and to reflect before God, you could do a lot worse than to try in the depths of your being to answer that question. If God said to you, what do you really want above all else? What would you say? It will reveal quite a bit about you, quite a bit about your understanding about God and the world in which we live. So a really penetrating question. Solomon, as we know, asks for wisdom and God grants his request at verse 12. I will do what you have asked. I'll give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be, uh, so there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. But God is suitably impressed with Solomon's restraint and selfless response that he goes on to say in verse 13, yeah, I'll give you wisdom, but moreover, I'll give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime, you will have no equal among kings. So in response to Solomon's attitude of heart, God offers a very generous response to which the only thing you can do is to worship, and that's exactly what Solomon does at verse 15. Solomon awoke, he realized it had been a dream, and he went straight back to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he had a party for all his court. What a nice chap. 
The rest of chapter 3 then goes on to offer an illustration of Solomon's wisdom. You may know the story, Uh, we won't tarry there this morning, about two women and a baby. Well, they both had babies, one baby died, there was a dispute as to whose baby was whom, and Solomon helped them sort it out, and you can read all about that there. Solomon was so wise then, this gift of wisdom, that visitors came from all around the world to benefit from his wisdom. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. So God gave Solomon a gift. Two things happened in response to the gift. One, Solomon worshipped, he was grateful, and secondly, that gift was a witness to surrounding peoples. What about the gifts that God has given you? Have you offered worship and thanks in response? Is that gift being used as a witness, a testimony to people all around? Just a little kind of challenge along the way. Chapter 10 tells us, don't turn to it yet though, uh, that uh, even the Queen of Sheba, who was well known and well endowed with riches and wealth, came to visit and was particularly impressed. And not surprising, because we get this summary verse, verse 29 to 30 of chapter 4. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. Fortunately, as it says in verse 32, that wisdom was written down, or at least some of them, in Proverbs. And so we have the book of Proverbs, which is a collection of uh, very important sayings for life and living that Solomon wrote. 31 Proverbs, one for every day of the month, and some people choose to read those on a daily basis. Wisdom, that's probably what we most know Solomon He was the wise guy of the Old Testament. But there's much more to his story than this gift of wisdom. As we move into chapter 5, we move from wisdom to worship. Solomon's major contribution to the journey, to the story, was the transformation that he brought to the worship of God's people by building the temple. Can you remember that David had said it was good for, 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 for us to have a temple, and God said, yeah, okay, but you won't build it. I'm going to give that task to your son Solomon. And so Solomon, living at a time of much greater peace than David did, was able to make uh, an alliance with the king of Tyre in Lebanon, where there were loads and loads of forests and trees, where he could get all the cedar wood that he needed, and he did a deal with the king there, and ate Uh, Sorry, 180,000 men started work on the temple. That's 180,000 men started work on the temple. The dimensions of the temple were were not huge at this stage. Remember the tent of meeting that they carried through through the desert and then on into Jerusalem? Anyone remember that? Well, it was the same... Same kind of dimension, twice the size, same shoe print, uh, but twice the size. So not enormous, not not a gigantic uh, uh, structure, but what it lacked in dimensions, it certainly made up for in decoration. It was the most elaborate and expensively decorated building you could possibly imagine. Overlaid the whole interior with gold, and you can read all about the detail of how expensive it was in uh, chapter 6. One impressive building. 
chapter 7, they get all the furnishings ready, and then uh, we move to chapter 8, where Chris kindly read to us from, when they are ready to bring the Ark of the Covenant, that central box that had had the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written, had been the focal point of their worship up until now in the tent of meeting, they were ready to move that into the temple itself. Verse 6 of chapter 8, the priest then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Then as the priests withdrew, the Lord's presence came down. Must have been an amazing moment. Verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Amazing sight, don't you think? When God moved in to his house quite visibly and literally in their midst. God there in the middle of the people. And I don't know if you can remember um, a, a few, I don't know, months back, goodness knows when, we were, we were journeying through the wilderness and we had this idea that God was up the mountain, then he came to the outside of the, tent, of the camp and then he moved into the middle of the camp. Remember that? Somebody, somebody, thank you, Bob. Somebody remembers that. Well, well, well then in greater measure, in this permanent structure... Now in their permanent land, God was moving permanently into residence among them. The covenant God who would keep his promise, who would be there in their midst. And so Solomon, not only the king, but the leader of the people, uh, bursts into speech. He preaches to them, and then he prays for them, and that's what fills most of chapter 8. And we haven't got time really to look at the detail. There's a whole series of sermons in chapter 8 itself. But just to highlight a few things that were really important for the people at this key moment. Verses 23 to 26 of chapter 8 is all about how faithful God had been. These were promises now being fulfilled that God had made way back. Abraham, Joseph, Exodus. Those promises were now coming to fruition. God had been faithful. He had done what he had said. And then I love the incongruity that Solomon, such wisdom that he has, realizes. Verse 27, he goes, this is really silly when I think about it. Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? He shows great understanding that God cannot be contained. Whatever we are doing here, Solomon says, we must remember that God can never, ever be contained or constrained by this building, this temple, this sacrificial system of which it speaks. God cannot be ever put into a box. He's bigger than that. And that's why Solomon began to use this different language. He started talking about, this is the place where God's name, do you notice that? God's name will be there. So Solomon's wanting to try and say, look, we know you're here in this temple, but if we think of you only in this temple, we will begin to think that you are too small. You are the God that fills heaven and earth. Lest we ever forget that, we're going to remind ourselves that it's just your name that lives in this temple. Because we don't begin to reduce our image and our understanding of you. And so he goes on through all of these verses about how God's presence in the middle of his people is a constant reminder that whatever their need, 
Whatever their circumstance, God, this covenantal God, who's made a covenantal promise of provision and protection, will provide and protect for them in every way. In the face of sin, in the face of defeat, in the face of famine or drought, God will heal, forgive, and restore. The temple, God's presence there in their midst, will be a sign of all of it. And it's not just for Israel, verse 41. These blessings will be extended to the foreigner. And verse 53, it's a reminder, the temple, God's presence there in the middle, of the the fact that, that Israel, God's people, are his rich reward, his inheritance, his treasured possession, as the Bible says elsewhere. It was a magnificent moment. And Carl's Chronicles gives us just a little bit more insight. So you've got to imagine the scene. They've moved the ark in. God's glory has come down on the temple. Uh, Solomon gets up to preach. This is an amazing moment. Before our very eyes, everything we've dreamed of and longed for is being fulfilled. Uh, And then Chronicles says something amazing happened just at the end of all of that. When Solomon, it says, uh, had finished praying, fire came down from heaven. And consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Imagine that. The fire came from heaven. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and they gave thanks. For he is good and his love endures forever. I've done that very quickly. Because I want us to see what a significant, what an important moment this is in the whole sweep, okay? We're doing the Bible from, uh, from uh, you know, 30,000 feet or whatever. We're, 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 we're uh, racing through to get the big picture. You see, this was a really, really big moment in the story. Not just because for the first time they were in the land with a permanent structure. But something else was going on that you can almost miss if you don't remember where we've come from and think about where we're going. You know it was a big moment because in various places the Bible stops to record the date. When we're approaching something really important, the date suddenly becomes of interest. If I say to you 2012, what do you think of? The Olympics, there you go. And so in exactly the same way, uh, 1 Kings 6 verse 37, the foundation of the temple, the writer goes, this is a very important moment, I'm going to give you the date. It was laid in the fourth year in the month of Ziv. Uh, uh, Verse 38 of 1 Kings 6, in the eleventh year in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. 1 Kings 6 verse 1 is another example. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, 12 generations after we've come out of Egypt, God is still keeping his promise. And so suddenly, all these dates suddenly come into play. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, he was high and lifted up. In the days of Caesar Augustus, a decree went out to all the world to be taxed. So do you notice how when the Bible gets to a really important moment, it starts chucking in the dates? And by the way, it was April the 16th, Simon's birthday. You see what I mean? Uh, And so it goes on. So we're at something that's really important, but what is it? Think about where we've come from. We've come from Abraham. Abraham was called to leave his what? His his father's house. His father's house. Remember the significance of leaving his father's house? They lived in a world where you couldn't be certain that God was appeased. 
You couldn't be certain that God wasn't angry with you. You couldn't be certain that your sin had somehow been dealt with, that you could be guilt-free before him. And so you had to keep doing more and more and more to be sure that you were forgiven, to be sure that you'd done enough to atone for your sin, to appease the gods. And so they were caught in this escalating cycle, which is why child sacrifice was so common. Because if you weren't sure, you'd offer something more, and then something more, and then something more, and then you offered the most you had, which was your firstborn child. And God said to Abraham, I want you to leave your father's house, your father's way of living, and go to a new land that I will show you. Leave that way behind. Which is why we're really surprised, or at least the first readers would have been really surprised when God said, Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice Isaac, your firstborn of the promise. I thought we were leaving all that behind. And so the story hangs in suspense as the knife is raised over Isaac, and God says, no. No, we're leaving that all behind. There is a new way. Look up and see. And there in the thicket was a a lamb. And the word says that God will provide the lamb. So we're leaving this old way of life, of being uncertain, of escalating sacrifices, because there would be a lamb, and who would provide it? God would provide it. And then God does provide it for them in the sacrifice, the sacrificial system. Because when we got into Leviticus, and it says you want to come to worship on a Sunday morning, what does it say? Just bring a... Sorry? Just bring a... You could bring a lamb. If you were really rich, you could bring a bull. And if you were very poor, you could bring a dove. Just bring... And we fail to understand how that was catapulting this whole sacrificial thing forward. You don't need to live anxious. Just bring the bull, offer the bull, and it's done. Just bring the goat, offer the goat, and it's done. And so on and so forth. And so God provided for them a way by which they could be absolutely certain. But can you remember the way we talked about that sacrificial system, the way that day after day, week after week, year after year with the Day of Atonement, they had to do it again and again and again. It was hard work, it was bloody, it was messy, it was almost obscene, this constant sacrificing of animals to cleanse them from their sin and so on. And so the yearning, the longing that was growing inside of them, surely there's a better way. Surely there's a different way. What if, what if this isn't the real thing, but this is pointing to something else? And so all of that was going on through the sacrificial system. Now, for the brilliant bit. Where did Abraham raise the knife over Isaac? Where were they? Mount Moriah. Different words you can use, but Mount Moriah, Jerusalem. Where's Solomon that is now going to house the Levitical sacrifices, where has Solomon built his temple? Mount Moriah. Where will one day God ultimately provide a sacrifice? The hill of Mount Moriah. A place called Golgotha, which is the crest of Mount Moriah. And so this thread goes right the way through. 
You go, why is this moment so important? This moment is so important in God's story because the Levitical system, that in itself will never do it, but points to something far greater and far permanent, was being moved to the location where Jesus himself would one day be sacrificed. The big moment in the story is that we have moved one big step closer to Jesus. And that's the brilliance of the Old Testament. That almost as you turn the page, you're filling in a bit more detail. You're moving a bit closer. A bit more detail. A little bit closer. A bit more understanding. A little bit closer. And so we're building an understanding of a covenant. We're building an understanding of sacrifice. We're building an understanding of prophets and priests and kings. And they will say of Jesus, he is the prophet, priest, and king. No surprises there. And so it was so important in heaven, if not on earth, because it was taking one gigantic step closer. So picking up our main theme, wisdom, worship, and then thirdly, Solomon is known for his wealth. God did what he said he would do and gave him great wealth. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 3, we're back in, but you could jump forward then to, to chapter 10 uh, of verse 23. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. Money poured into the country that even the Queen of Sheba was impressed, as we said some moments ago. And, uh, and foreign leaders were so impressed that they came to see Solomon's wisdom and his wealth. In other words, think about where we are in the story, the establishment of the temple, the promise, the sacrificial system already in place on Mount Moriah, the idea that God would would, would provide for them there in their midst. In so many ways, the promise of Abraham was coming true. And it would be kind of nice to leave it there. But the Bible's too honest. Sometimes we might think for its own good. Just when it looks like everything is coming together, through these 11 chapters in 1 Kings, weaves a backstory. Another story is going on, being weaved between the main themes that we've just highlighted. Something else was going on. And just like with David, there was a weaving of a different story. And so we see in Solomon a weaving of a different story. And it's true in your life and mine. There is the front story, the way it looks. The wisdom, the wealth, the worship, whatever those things might be. The things that we are succeeding in, that we are winning in, that we are presenting to the world. But there can often be a backstory, which almost with the same ease as Solomon, we can ignore it, pretend it isn't there. For Solomon, that was to turn out to be fatal. And it can sometimes be true, metaphorically, fatal for us. What's this backstory? Well, we need to go back just a few Sundays to a very important verse when God was choosing King David. And you remember Samuel was getting in a pickle with Jesse 
and saying, which son is it? It's going to be the tallest, the oldest. And before he made a complete fool of himself, God says to Samuel, look, Samuel, remember this. Don't think about appearance or height. The Lord doesn't look at the things that man looks at. The Lord looks at the the heart. At the heart. Solomon, on the outside, everything was looking great. The wisdom, the worship, the wealth. But looking beneath this veneer of riches and power, the Bible begins to expose that there was something wrong with his heart. Heart disease can go unnoticed, undetected for years, and its effects can suddenly strike. To the casual observer, Solomon's heart disease went undetected, but the results were to be catastrophic. Solomon had a divided heart, and it was going to lead on his death to a divided kingdom the moment he died. Solomon failed to heed his own advice. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Let's look at this backstory, okay? So same, same 11 chapters that we've whisked through already, but there's another story going on. And uh, again, if you have your Bible open in front of you, I think that'll really help. We need to go back to chapter 2 for a moment. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, show yourself a man. Verse 3, the important bit. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. What does Solomon have to do? Observe the law. Agreed? That's quite straightforward, isn't it? Where where does Solomon find the law? Okay, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It says specifically here, the law of Moses, which is the book of Deuteronomy in particular, although you could argue the whole Torah is the law of Moses. So Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Do you know what kings had to do when they came to the throne? They had to write the whole law out by hand to make absolutely sure they'd read every word. That's quite a cunning plan, isn't it, don't you think? That's quite God knew. (laughs) Just write that out and then put your crown on. Okay, so that's the deal. Solomon knows the law. He's written it out. He understands all about it. He's just heard David tell him what he has to do. 1 Kings 3, verse 1. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Well, that's enough, if you like. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace in the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Deuteronomy chapter 3, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, say two things. Don't make any treaties with foreign nations and don't marry foreign wives. What's the Bible saying? The very first thing the Bible says Solomon did as king. We gloss over it, move on to the wisdom, the worship, and the wealth, the front story, but there's a back story. Alliances with other nations were totally forbidden because their trust needed to be in God 
and God alone. He was their provider and their protector, not through political alliances. Any heart that is not fully devoted to God is a divided heart. Solomon had a divided heart. Instead of being totally devoted to God, as the front story would give the impression of, there is a back story of his heart being divided because he clings to different things. He clings to his own ability. I will make this alliance with Egypt so that I can secure the safety of my kingdom. That's essentially what he did. The irony of it is not lost on you, is it? If you're going to make an alliance, which country would you choose? How long did they take to get out of Egypt? How long did it take to get Egypt out of them? I know. The king of Egypt's daughter, she's quite nice. Let's make an alliance with them. And so with one swoop, Solomon takes them back. It was a very costly mistake. Verse 3, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except, oh no, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on high places. He clings to his own authority. There were these high places where the pagans had worshipped, and God says in Deuteronomy, do not worship there. Solomon says, I'm king, I'll worship where I like. I don't need the priests, I'll do it on my own own. And so he clings to his own authority. Chapter 4, the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered, what? How many? What's Leviticus chapter 1 say? Even if you're rich, how many bulls do you bring? One. What's he doing? Has he fallen into the trap of escalating sacrifices? Has he forgotten that God had called the people out of this cycle of always needing to offer more, as if by your offerings you can impress the God of heaven? No, God will provide. So what was he trying to do? Why did he go to the high place where everybody could see him? And why bring a thousand bulls? Look at me and the way I worship. I sing better than you. My offering's bigger than yours. I'm here early and you're here late. Whatever it might be. And so he's clinging to his own appearance. Better look good, I know, a thousand bulls. They'll never have seen anything like that. That will impress them. And so can you see, just in these opening few verses of the story, there's this duplicity going on. There's this division in Solomon's heart. It's a bit like a a film where where the the main plot goes through the film, but just at the beginning of the film, you're introduced to the backstory. Yeah, you're introduced to, you're given a special insight that tells you, that shows you that everything you're about to see is not quite as it appears. Can't think of a film like that because I'm too holy reading my Bible and praying. But you probably can. You know, a film like that, where, where you just get this little glimpse that something isn't quite right, and then the main plot begins. You know what I'm talking about? And it's like that. So you're a Jewish reader, reading this for the first time. You know all about the law, because as a Jewish boy and girl, you were taught to memorize the whole thing, for goodness sake. You know, you knew this inside out, back to front. These verses, 1 Kings chapter 3, you'd be going, uh-oh, uh-oh, 
Uh-oh, whatever, like a Teletubby, isn't it? Uh-oh. Whatever else I'm about to read about Solomon, there's this big doubt in the back of my mind. This is not good. Not everything I see here is as it appears. Is that a commentary on our lives? That you get this front story, and then there's this back story, which we don't let people in on but it's weaving its way through what we allow others to see. So the Bible's saying about Solomon, there's this backstory. Don't be fooled by all that it appears. Something else is going on. Please turn with me a few pages to the end of chapter 6. Verse 37, in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He'd spent, how long? Seven years building it. You impressed? You should be. 180,000 men, seven years. It was an impressive building. Now remember that when this was first written, there weren't chapters, numbers, and there weren't verses. One led directly to the other. So let's read that again. In the 11th year, in the month of Bull, the 8th month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building it. Seven verse one, absolutely no break whatsoever. It took Solomon how long? To do what? To build his palace. Hmm. Hmm. Intra- hmm. Interesting. Well, what's the writer saying? What's the little window on the back story? Solomon was clinging to his own adulation. I'll build the temple with its God, but then I'll, then I'll build my palace. Do you know the, 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 the image must have, the, the irony of the, the image, that the, the palace and the temple were adjacent to each other. So he didn't have to go far to church. You know, a bit like vicarages, you know. Build it, build it right next door so they stand a chance of getting there on time. No. But, so, so you've got the big palace and then the temple that looked impressive now dwarfed by the palace. The temple was always in the shadow of the palace. Solomon's ego created a shadow over the things of God. Is that a commentary on your life sometimes? That your ego rises above your worship of God. It was cool all those books last week, wasn't it? Did you get a book or two last week? Couldn't stretch to it this week, I'm afraid. Did you pick up The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian? Who picked that book up? Whoa, you got yourselves a treat, everybody. These two geniuses picked the right one. Written, I think, in about 1953, called The Calvary Road. It's a classic little story about, a classic little book about our spiritual devotion. And the need that the eye of our ego needs to be bent into the sea of Christ. Solomon built a palace that overshadowed the temple. Do you sometimes do that? Solomon's wealth was at a cost too. 
It cost the people dearly in forced labor. Chapter 9 gives us lists of the forced labor that he had involving hundreds of thousands of men. And these included the Israelites too. So at the end of his reign, when they were debating who was going to take over from him, they said this, look, your father, that's Solomon, put a heavy yoke on us. Lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke, the taxes that he has put on us, and we will serve you. 1 Kings 4 verse 7 talks about how the country was divided up into 12 districts and the people were taxed in order that the royal palace that is bigger than the temple should never be without everything that it needs. And so by the time of Solomon's death, the people, uh, the, the people were, were furious. Some of the other political leaders were, were boiling over in anger at the way Solomon had eventually exploited the people all the days of his life because he was clinging to his own autonomy. Everything revolves around me. This is, I'm the king. This is my nation. This is mine. It's all about me. No, absolutely rubbish. I'm the king and I deserve it. And certainly if you read on in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 26, Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariots and horses, and 12,000 horses. The district officers, each in his month, supplied provisions for the king, Solomon, and all who came to the king's table. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses. He was so full of himself that he completely ignored the law of Deuteronomy. Turn with me to Deuteronomy just for a moment, chapter 17. Keep your finger in, in, in 1 Kings. Someone, what's the page number for Deuteronomy 17 in a pew Bible? Sorry? 196? 196, thanks. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14. Solomon would have written this out. Specific instructions about what to do when you get a king. You think he would have taken notice, don't you think? When you enter the land your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, uh, one who is not a brother Israelite. 16. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of... How many horses has Solomon got? Four th- is that enough for any man? Probably great number of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt. Well, he didn't quite do that, but what was the first thing he did was to get into bed, quite quite literally, with uh, Egypt, to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you must not go back that way again. He must not take many... Interesting. We'll see in a minute. Or his what? His heart will be led astray... He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. On a scale of 1 to 10, how well is Solomon doing? Not very well. Okay. Good. So there is a backstory that tells us something different. He had many wives, is the only thing we haven't looked at, because his divided heart made him cling to his own appetites. Chapter 11 tells us about his wives. It kind of begins, 1 Kings 11 verse 1, uh, Solomon, uh-oh, loved many foreign women, and they became his downfall. He had 700 wives, verse 3, of royal birth, and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed, and we didn't have to point any of that out, 
shows a level of maturity. He is the man who wrote in a proverb, I quote, a nagging wife is like a dripping tap. (laughs) But if you find yourself a good one, she's worth more than precious gems. So he didn't do very well on the marriage prep thing, Solomon. He's on 600 and still looking. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his what? Heart. It's about the heart. Look at those stories from that moment in Samuel when God says, I look at the heart. Trace the heart through David and Solomon. The big sweep of the Bible is teaching us something. It's not about the way it looks. It's an issue of the heart. David did sin catastrophically. But when he repented with all his heart, God forgave him. Solomon lived with this divided heart all his life, and that was his downfall. And he turned to foreign gods. It's a really sad way to end, isn't it? Yes. Too many cooks do indeed spoil the broth. And too many wives lead you all over the shop. And he went to the gods of these foreign wives... And so, verse 6, Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's tragic, isn't it? This is Solomon, the greatest moment almost in Israel's history when the sacrifice system gets established at Mount Moriah. It was that Solomon who then did that. It's a matter of the heart. And if you ever wonder, why do preachers, teachers, your your best people that, that seem to love the Lord with all their hearts, suddenly you hear some news about them going well off the rails, and you think, that happened from nowhere. No, it didn't. There's a backstory that's weaving its way through the front story. Be very aware of your backstories. Very aware of your backstories. Verse 9 The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart, here it is again, had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. We haven't got time to look at this now, but if you go back to the speech that Solomon gave at the inauguration of the temple, he talks about the Lord knowing people's hearts, and he prays that God would would deal with people's hearts. So in public, he's praying and understanding all the right stuff. And just after he'd done that, God takes him aside at the beginning of chapter 9 and says, do you know what, David? Uh, Solomon, sorry. Do you know what, Solomon? Verse 4 of 1 Kings 9. If you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, if, because God already knew Solomon wasn't. He was not internalizing what he was demonstrating on the outside. And so God warns him very clearly what will happen. But by then, Solomon is already too deaf to heed God's advice, too blind to what God was showing him. So our response, very quickly might be this. Give me an undivided heart, Lord. I I don't need a backstory. I can't, I can't afford a backstory in my life. Wonderful promise in Ezekiel, thinking again, looking ahead. Ezekiel says a new day is coming when God will pour out his spirit so that we do not need to have undivided hearts. Good news? We live in that day. God longs to pour his spirit upon you that you do not need an undivided heart. And to live right, you need to have a heart that's fully devoted to the Lord. Maybe this is why every day, many times a day in some cases, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 
that every godly Jewish person would say to themselves and to one another, called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Let's pray.